0: The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if all of our kids are headed down the hall to kids' worship, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. This is our second week in our series going through this Old Testament minor prophecy. And I'll remind you that it's minor not because it's not important, just because it's a little shorter. And uh, all the the twelve, the minor prophets, are uh, extremely important. Of course, if it's in God's Word, it's important. Amen? Amen. So today we're going to look at our second chapter in Micah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And uh, I've called the message today, Many Are the Plans. And I think you kind of know where that's going. Uh, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but God directs his steps. That's in the Bible, I believe, isn't it? In fact, I'll read it to you. It's Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then again in Proverbs 19 and verse 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And that's uh, important for us to remember because... Uh, In our day and age, as in many generations that have passed, we have a bad habit of trusting in the counsel of ourselves, the counsel of men, as opposed to the counsel of God. And so the Bible is really helpful because it reminds us, uh, especially in Proverbs 19, that uh, even though we have a lot of plans, it's the counsel of the Lord that's going to stand. And so I want to introduce this passage today by... uh, reminding us all of this phrase in Latin. Did anybody have to take Latin when you were in school? Wow, that many? None. <laughs> that's awesome. They offered it when I was in high school, I remember. That's been uh, 31 30 years ago, but uh, they offered Latin as, a, as an elective. Now, they offered, I think, French, Spanish, German, German. And, uh, and Latin. And I had some friends that actually took Latin, which nobody speaks Latin anymore. It's a, lot, it's a root language, and it leads to the formation of many of our English words, but it's not spoken, really. Uh, but there's a phrase in Latin that I want to remind us of. It's called Deo Valente. Deo Valente. Now, if you, if you recognize any little clue there, the first word, Deo, that's God. Okay. But the whole phrase together, Deo Valente, means God willing. So how often have we used a phrase like that, God willing? Matter of fact, we've even adapted a phrase that's a little bit uh, longer than that in in my culture and area, good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Right. Right? Isn't that a phrase? So this is the, that's the, the southern paraphrase of that Latin term, Deo Valente. So, God willing. We'll, we'll do this tomorrow, God willing. We're going to go on vacation here this summer, God willing. Because, why do we say that? Why do we say that? What compels us to even have that thought? Something may happen. God may call us home. There may be some change in our plans. But here's the key ingredient that flows through all that. We don't know. Who knows? God does. God knows. We don't. And so we say that phrase. That's why these passages that I read to you a moment ago from Proverbs sixteen nine and Proverbs nineteen twenty one. the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. See, there's a, a deflection. Away from us and all to God. Because the bottom line is, we just don't know. God knows, and so we always have to keep that. I was going to say say that, but keep that in our hearts and minds, so that we have a, almost like a, a bowling alley with the bumpers up. You ever seen those? Uh, they, they're designed for children, but you know, I'm I'm fine with using them myself. I don't I don't. I'm not proud. Uh, that keeps me out of the gutter, right? So those are guides. Okay, so that should be our guide. As a matter of fact, how about when we pray? What's an adaptation of that phrase when we pray? God, this is a burden on my heart. I have this this loved one who's suffering with this illness. I have this loved one who just had a car accident. I have, I have these needs, and, and I'm asking you to intervene. Nevertheless, not yeah yeah that's right. Not my will, your will be done. Where's that in the Bible? Oh, that's right. Jesus said it when he was praying in the garden. Lord, Father, take this cup from me. In other words, if there's any other way we can accomplish the plan of redemption without me having to do what I'm about to do, let's do that. But, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, right? Don't we even say that in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying? God, you know best. So whatever you say, that's what we want to do. So when we get to this chapter in Micah, in the story, here, in the last week we talked about rebellion in the kingdom. We talked about how God's people had uh, forsaken the pathway that God had laid out for them and how that has consequences. Well, this, this week we're going to talk about the plans that man has versus the plans that God has and what that looks like in the midst of God's people. So let's read the Scripture together. Ma- uh, Micah chapter 2. and it's, uh, We'll read all of chapter 2, uh, all 13 verses. Here's what the Bible says. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me, To the apostate he apportions our fields. Therefore you will have no one uh, casting a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. It is being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passersby, from those returned from war. The women of my people, you evict each one from her pleasant house. From her children, you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. If a man walking after wind and falsehood has... Told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be spokesman to this people. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. And so their king goes on before them, and the Lord. At their head. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'll take this word we've read and that you will open our hearts and minds, help us to understand, help us to see and hear and experience your truth in your word, and then, Lord, I pray you give us the strength to be obedient that you might receive all glory and honor through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this text here today has a couple of different paragraphs in it, but there's a theme that kind of runs through it. It starts out with man's plan versus God's plan. So I want to see that concept in the very first five verses, the first paragraph of this chapter. Man's plans versus God's plans. The Bible starts out in verse 1 and tells us they scheme iniquity. In other words, it's not enough to just do bad things. They're making plans about how to do bad things. They're thinking about it. They scheme iniquity, the Bible says. They plan evil while lying on their beds. It's almost as if folks are going to sleep thinking about, hmm, I wonder what mess I can cause tomorrow. I wonder what trouble I can get in tomorrow. I'm going to come up with a good plan on how I can do somebody wrong. In other words, I'm not thinking about how can I love others? How can I serve my neighbor? How can I fulfill the law of God which is bound up in the two commandments of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. How can I fulfill that in my life? Nope. Not doing that. That would be too uh, godly. That would be too good and uh, helpful for others. And that would show Jesus to the world too well. So I don't want to do that. I want to come up with the worst thing I can think of. But I'm going to have to give it some thought. So I'm going to have to plan some things. Can you imagine that being someone's perspective? That thought process to say... I want nothing good for my neighbor. I want bad. I want to be as selfish and as self-serving as I can possibly be. I don't care who I have to step on or who I have to hurt as long as it works out good for me. That's not a very positive outlook, is it? And it's unfortunate that there are folks in the world that behave and think exactly like that. It's a terrible, terrible truth. But this, this type of attitude and perspective, that's the type of thing that is being called to judgment by our Lord. He says they scheme iniquity, they plant evil on their beds, they covet the possessions of others, they steal from others. You know, just in those two statements, that's two of the Ten Commandments, is it not? Commandment number eight... Thou shalt not steal. Right? Commandment number ten. You should not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Right? So two of the ten commandments are already called into question by this people that were supposedly the people of God. Right? They're supposed to be following God's plan, God's direction, and His guidance because He's they're His people. James Boyce says that we are a generation of people who are never at peace with what we have, always seeking more. And you can see that in our culture, can't you? It's never enough. I heard a, um, an interview with a very wealthy man who was asked, how much is enough, really? How much money is enough? He said, I'll tell you when I get there. Really? Sitting on millions and millions of dollars. How much is enough? I, know, I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there. Always want more. Never satisfied. Never at peace. You know, uh, in, in Psalm chapter 33, verses 10 and 11, we're talking about man's plans versus God's plans. You know, that first section there was about man's plans. But in Psalm 33... The Bible says that the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. That sounds a lot like that verse in Proverbs, doesn't it? The counsel of the Lord. See, God is taking what the people have done and what they're continually doing and He says, Well, I'm, gonna, I'm planning a calamity against this people. Well, calamity is like a disaster. He's planning the judgment that is going to come upon these folks because of what they've done, how they've lived, and how they've ignored his direction. And then he says, he goes on to say, they're not going to be able to uh, get away from it. You look at verse 3, the Bible says, I am planning against this family a calamity, and they're not going to be able to get away from it. You will not be able to remove your neck, he says. And then he talks about their arrogance. You're not going to be walking like that when this happens. When when the consequences for your actions come upon you, you won't be walking around like you got everything, you know, got the 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 world on a string, you got everything just in your in your pocket. You know, you're not going to be acting that way. You're going to be unable to escape. You're going to be humbled. Now this right here I want to just take a moment. This word right here. They're going to be humbled by judgment. There's uh, several verses. I want to read them to you from Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is one of the major prophets. And he's the major prophet because his prophecy is much more lengthy. Okay, Remember I told you the minor prophets aren't minor because they're not important. They're just shorter. They're more brief. But in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 10 and, and following, let me let me just tell you what God told Isaiah to tell the people. Because, you know, when you... Here's, here's what happens. Let me just set the stage for you right quick. When you disobey God and disregard all His direction, you, it's not that you don't know, but you just disregard it. Okay, so God gives us His Word. He gives us His direction. says, here's how you should live a holy and righteous life. Here's how you should pattern yourself after Christ Right. This is how you're to live. If you're going to be my child, this is how you should live. And then they've turned away from that. So it's not that they didn't know, they just disregarded. And so because of that, you know, when, when, uh, when you do something like that and maybe the consequences are um, delayed. That's a good way to put it. So maybe you're doing something wrong. How about the thief that's stealing and he's continually stealing but he's not getting caught. And so what happens? The more times he steals and doesn't get caught, what happens? Oh, this isn't so bad. A L- little more comfortable, right? Oh, I'm, I'm not going to... There's not going to be any consequences for this. I'm going to be all right. It's no big deal. And so you get a little more bold, right? The more you you steal and the more you don't get caught, you get a little more bold, a little more risky. And, and so what what feeds that arrogance, arrogance, right? Oh, they can't, they can't, I'm too smart, they can't catch me. I'm going to get in and get out, they'll never know I was here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal them blind and they'll never know, right? Because I'm too smart. I'm too, you get arrogant you start believing your own hype, and all of a sudden, no, I can't get caught, I'll be all right. Well, let me tell you what God says about that, about diverting from his pathway over and over until you become arrogant with it. In Isaiah chapter 2, beginning verse 10, this is what the Bible says, Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. And the, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You know, nobody's got a right or privilege to behave in an arrogant way. You know why? Because we're not God. Only God is going to be exalted because only God is God. Right? So so we don't have that privilege to have that attitude. It's it's just an illusion. Isaiah goes on to say, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, and they will be humbled. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it makes me not want to be arrogant. <laughs> you know, I read that and i like, I don't want that. I don't want to be humbled by God Himself. I don't want that to be me that the Bible describes. That's verse 10 through 12. In the same chapter, Isaiah 2, you go down a little bit further, and you get to verse 17... He says it again: the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will completely disappear. In other words, every thing, or person, or item, or or uh, anything that has replaced God's rightful position on the throne of our lives anything, the idols, they're going to completely vanish. There will be nothing sitting in God's place. Does that make sense? There's all kinds of different things that could creep in and take God's place. We could allow things to come into our lives that are looked at or treated in a way that is reserved for God alone. Only God sits on the throne. In heaven, in our lives, only God is worthy of that, okay? And so when we take something else and put it there in that place, well, we have to move God off of it, as if we really could. But in our lives, we move God out of his rightful place and we start treating or looking at something or someone the same way we should only look at God. Does that make sense? Idols. They take many forms, but they're going to completely disappear. When God's judgment and consequence for this comes down, all these things will will be removed. They're going to be humbled by judgment. They're going to be taunted and ridiculed, the Bible says. They'll be stripped of the possessions that they stole from the poor, and their place in the nation would be lost forever. So there are consequences, as we even discussed last week. There are consequences for our actions. So man's plans versus God's plans. In the first five verses, God's plans are always better. Amen. Always better. Number two, there will be religious opposition. Religious opposition. So in verse 6 down to verse 11, you see this, this conflict between, ironically, listen, listen closely, there's a conflict with what is being preached. Now, I know that never happens in churches in our culture, right? Nobody is ever upset about what the preacher says or doesn't say, right? Just just checking to see if you're paying attention. See, in this Scripture, in verse 6, the religious leaders are telling Micah, who is God's prophet, no, you don't need to preach that. They're telling... Have you heard the rumors? Have you heard in our nation the, the little rumblings of There may come a time when uh, preachers' sermons will be under scrutiny of the state and they'll be looked at and reviewed to determine whether or not a preacher is allowed to preach what's in the Bible. Have you heard that? Hey, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to the world around us. There are, are bad... Uh, trends that are starting and and have been started for quite some time and and that's one of them it's it's possible I, I pray it's not probable but it's possible that if I were to stand up here in front of you with nothing but the word of God in my hand and I preach what is in here I could go to jail that, that sounds like another country, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like this country. But guess what? That's where uh, things are being pushed. That direction. And so I've just got one thing to say about that. Y'all come visit me. and Bring me some biscuits. Because prisons, people in prison need Jesus too. So the religious leader... You, you see who's fighting here? The religious leaders are telling God's prophet, you don't need to preach that. It sounds very similar to what was going to happen to Jesus, right? Who, was, who were the chief enemies of Jesus? The Pharisees, right? Supposed to be the religious leaders. So they're telling Micah, don't preach what he was preaching. And by the way, in case we think that that is not something that's trending or could happen, just mark this down. If you, want to, if you like to write notes, whatever, just jot down 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul tells Timothy, in no uncertain terms, the day will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they'll turn aside from the truth and turn to myths. And he what does he say? What does Paul say? But you you preach the word. Do the work of an evangelist. Endure hardship. Fulfill your ministry. That, that's what he says. Don't in other words, he doesn't say, well, you know, don't offend anybody. Really? Really? Don't offend anybody. I, I, got, a, I got a lot I could say about that. Not going to say it. Don't have time. I'm I'm going to preach the Word, okay? That's all I have to say. You don't need my opinion. You don't need what I think. You need to know what God has said and nothing more or nothing less. So they were defending, these people who were telling Micah not to preach what he was preaching, they were defending their corrupt leadership. They were denouncing God's prophet. And then you have false prophets that are casting doubt on God's character and His message. It's just, you can't imagine the, the opposition that's coming against God's man from religious people. It's a terrible thing. In fact, here's an example in our own day, not too terribly long ago, years ago, you remember Jerry Falwell uh, up in Lynchburg, Virginia, right, Liberty University? and Jerry's gone and will be with the Lord, but there was a, a newspaper called The Daily Advance, and Jerry Falwell made a statement about the potential of God bringing judgment on America for its sin unless the nation would repent and turn to Him. The newspaper went nuts, and they actually said, the newspaper did, said that America was too good to be judged by God. And they asked Falwell to retract his statement. Really? What news are you looking at? How could you possibly look around this country and pay attention at all and think that America is too good to be judged by God? But but I just want you to know that's the kind of perspective that is in the world. It's in the culture. It's not in the Bible. That's what's in the culture. James Boyce even said, we make a mistake in thinking we can have one relationship with God and a totally different relationship with other people. God declares that is impossible. If we make other people our enemies, then we make God our enemy too. You know how I know that? Ephesians 6.12 For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Spiritual evil, dark forces in the heavenly realm. See, nobody, no person is my enemy. The devil's my enemy. And he's already been uh, beaten. He's done. So he's still trying to cause trouble, but he's defeated. But we don't fight against people. We can't... uh, Why would Jesus give us the great commandment of love your neighbor as yourself? And why would he tie that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why is that in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6 and in the New Testament when Jesus repeats that as an answer to a question? Why why would it be throughout the the Scriptures that those two things are uh, what fulfills the Law and the Prophets? It's because it's that important. It, it, It summarizes the Ten Commandments. We've talked about this numerous times. The first four commandments relate to our relationship with God. The second six commandments relate with, uh, talk about our relationship with, with others. And if we miss the first two, then we can't keep the other eight. What are the first two commandments? You will have no other gods before me. Number two, you'll have no idols. See, if we don't get those right, then we've already lost before we started because we, we're not in a, a relationship with God that puts us in a position to fulfill the other commandments. So if we're going to live for Him, we have got to really live for Him. So the people, because of all this, this religious opposition is, is trying to stop the message of God. The people are going to be exiled from the promised land. They're, they're going to be uh, taken away from what where they're supposed to be because they're not living up to what God has given them. Right. And so you can go. You can just jot this down. I'm not going to read it. It's a lengthy passage. But in Matthew chapter 25. From about verse thirty one to the end of that chapter. This is detailed. It's right there in Matthew's gospel. And and you read that and you think the, the the people are going to be punished. They're going to be exiled, uprooted from the promised land, because they're not listening to God's word. See it all this that's happening, it's really not all that complex when you boil it down. We have the word. Read it. Do what it says. I mean, that, that's not rocket science, is it? I mean, yeah, when you apply it, when you actually get down to actually obeying it, it becomes challenging because there's a lot of uh, things that are counter-cultural in here. They're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're not outlandish. His, uh, in first John, uh, God tells us his, his commandments are not burdensome. But when we're surrounded by all this evil and nonsense in the culture, it becomes a challenge. To live for Christ. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. right? Just because it's a challenge. So the people would not listen to Micah. And and in fact, this is almost, it's not comical, it's sad. But verse 11, he actually says in verse 11, the only prophet that would be fit for these people would be a prophet who was preaching about wine and liquor. (laughs) Hey, if you want to talk about alcohol, yeah, come on over. Join our crowd. That's the kind of, that's the kind of prophet the folks are, listen, are, are listening to and looking for. So if you want to take that and then compare it to 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul tells Timothy about what kind of teachers the people are looking for, they're not going to endure sound doctrine, it's a fulfillment of what God is prophesying here through Micah. The only prophet fit for these folks is a false prophet who talks about alcohol. So you have a contrast between man's plans and... In God's plans, you have religious opposition that is trying to stop the message of God, the Word of God. But when you get to the end of the chapter, the last two verses, you start to see there is hope for the hopeless. Look at verses 12 and 13 here as we as we finish up. There's a, a concept when we talk about, you can see it in military... Um, operations. You can see it in wars. And when you think about the reason why wars, conflicts, are typically well thought out and well planned, and they are strategic. So if we have an enemy, here's why we don't just load up the bombers and fly over there and level the whole country. Right? Why don't we do that? There's this little term, collateral damage. You know what that means? There's a lot of innocent people in there that don't have any idea what's going on and they don't support what their country's doing and they don't don't pose a threat. So why would we want to bring judgment on them, right? Why would we want to harm them? They would be collateral damage because there's certain places and people who are the real uh, conflict, that's who our issue's with, right? And so that's why all throughout here you see this strategic initiative to say, well, we can't just go in there and bomb the whole place because that would hurt a lot of innocent people. So you read Micah and you think all this is going to happen and here's what the thought occurs to me and, and probably to you too. You mean to tell me in this entire nation, even the divided nation, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, you mean to tell me out of all those people, there's not anybody that's still trying to follow the Lord? Look in our own world, look in our own culture, even in our own county, there's a lot of people that don't care anything about church or God or the Bible, and they're not trying to live that way. But you mean to tell me nobody's trying to do that? Everybody is 100% against God? No, of course not. Of course not. So you read Micah's prophecy and you think, well, okay, does, if the city falls, does that mean the poor and the helpless are going to be punished along with the wicked? Or the innocent are going to suffer along with the guilty? Well, it would seem that way, right? Until you get to verse 12 and verse 13. Then you see the hope. Because look what God says. Look at the the promises. I will assemble all of you, Jacob. I'll gather the remnant of Israel. I'll put them together like sheep in the fold. The one who breaks open the way is going to go before them. Well, who's that? Who could possibly break open that way? Do you see a, a picture of who's coming to do something like that? Jesus is. Jesus is going to break open the way. Look at the way this chapter ends. They're going to break through the gate. They're going to go out. The king, the Lord, is going to be at their head. See, somebody's got to lead this charge, and it seems fitting that it would be the Lord. Jesus is going to lead the charge. So this, this scenario kind of reminds us of the world today. We live in an evil world where the innocent often suffer for the sins of wicked men. But what we see today is not the whole picture of reality. Jesus is coming again, and He's going to come to rule and to reign. And He's going to uh, always judge perfectly. His justice and righteousness are always appropriate and correct. And so the way of the future is bright for those who are waiting for Jesus to come and waiting for His kingdom. See, there's always going to be things around us that aren't good. We're going to always look at the news or look in our world and we're going to see things that are evil and we're going to wonder sometimes. What are we going to do? This world is is so terrible. How, How are we going to continue? How are we going to function? And then there's always hope in the Scripture that says, this is not the final word. Because when I read my Bible, here's what I see. I see a God who created all things, and they were all good. He tells us that. And then I see sin enter the picture when Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and they give in to temptation, and sin enters the world, and everything seems broken. Nothing is as it should have been. There's Harmony that was destroyed and now all of a sudden there's a distance between man and God and there's got to be something done to fix that. And all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way to the end of Malachi, you see this picture painted that sometime God is going to send a Redeemer to fix what was wrong. And then there's this period of silence. 400 years give or take what's going to happen why isn't God speaking to his people has he forgotten has he left us he said he wouldn't do that but we haven't heard from him in a while where's God's prophet and then one day this fella shows up in the wilderness and he looks crazy And he's saying all these strange things and he's dressed funny and he's eating locusts and honey and he's talking about repent, repent. Why should we do that? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then this carpenter's boy shows up and everybody thinks, well, he can't do anything. That's just, he's Joseph's son. What's he going to do? Well, they would get an answer to that question. Because after being on the earth about 33, 34 years He was going to carry a cross up a hill and die for our sins. And then all of redemptive history was going to be rewritten because Jesus died for you. He he paid a penalty. He sacrificed Himself so that we would have reconciliation with God again. That's The plan of God. You're talking about man's plans. We could not have possibly dreamed up a story of redemption like that. That's why God is God and I'm not. His plans are always so much greater, so much better, and and they don't fail like my plans. So when Jesus completed redemption when he died on that cross and then when he rose up victoriously on the third day from the tomb and and now he's ascended into heaven and he's at his rightful place at the right hand of God where he's constantly praying for us. That is reality. These wicked people all around us that are trying to subvert the gospel and take us away from God and get rid of God at every turn that's not reality. That is a feeble attempt of a defeated enemy. Because, contrary to what many believe or, or remember, the devil knows he's beaten. He knows his time is short. And it's all because of Jesus. Bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word.